everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. I'm going to bring on our first guest. Susan Abuhawa is a Palestinian-American writer and human rights activist. She's the author of Mornings in Janine, The Blue Between Sky and Water, and Against the Loveless World. She's the founder of Playgrounds for Palestine and the executive director of Palestine Rights. She's also the winner of several awards, including the Leeway Foundation and Nandrade Award for Fiction and Creative Nonfiction, Best Books Award for Historic Fiction, Memo Palestine Book Award, and we'd be here all day if I kept reading them. So I'm just going to bring her onto the show. Susan, welcome. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. First of all, thank you for coming, and I'm a big fan of your books, and so it's very exciting for me to be interviewing you. And I highly suggest everyone read all three of the novels that you've written, and Mornings in Janine is especially relevant right now for very unfortunate reasons, but I think it's a really great way for people to get a sense of the life in Janine. I want to just thank you for writing that book and the other books that you've written. Wow, thanks, Katie. I appreciate that. Can you share with listeners your relationship to Palestine and your family's relationship to Palestine? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm Palestinian. We're indigenous to the place. My family goes back hundreds of years in a town called Atur, which is in East Jerusalem. Prior to that, we hailed from a village called Deir el-Hawa, which is my namesake, which is in West Jerusalem. So at some point, I think in the 15th century, one of my ancestors made the long trek, left our ancestral village in Deir el-Hawa, and then went to a new village. So most of us have been expelled. I still have some cousins who still live in Palestine. Um, there's a big, you know, it's, it's a huge sprawling family on, on the Mount of Olives. But my immediate family were exiled. My, my grandmothers died as refugees, and here we are. And where did your family go? All over, like most Palestinians. I mean, families were, were scattered, seeking sustenance in different places. My parents initially went to Jordan, and then they went to Kuwait, which is where I was born. You know, some of us uh, are in Jordan, some are in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, other parts of the Gulf, Lebanon. And have you been able to go back to Palestine? Well, I lived in Palestine when I was younger. And when I turned 13, Israel expelled me for, you know, being an infiltrator because I didn't have documentation, ironically. And then I went back as an American citizen many years later. And I was going back every year with a, an organization that I founded to build playgrounds in Palestine. We, you know, I went there every year to build playgrounds and visit family and, you know, just be in my homeland. But in 2015, I think it was, I was banned from entering and I haven't been able to go back since. Have they told you why? I've never been told why. The second time I was uh, not allowed in Gedeon Levy, he's a, an Israeli reporter for Haaretz, wrote an article about it. And I think he called the, the interior ministry to inquire why. And he was told, according to the article that he wrote, that I was rude to my interrogator in 2015. And yeah, that, I mean, that's literally the reason that they told him. After hours of interrogation, I was rude to her and therefore, and he even says, as far as I know, that's not illegal. Yeah. I also, okay, I don't want to get, I'm saying this, not you, but Israelis, and I have cousins there. They're not, being rude in Israel is not very atypical. That's all I'm going to say. I don't think, I'm sure you weren't rude, or if you were rude, it was justifiable, but it's kind of rich for Israelis to kick people out of anywhere for being rude. Well, I, I think it highlights the arbitrariness of their rule over Palestinians not just, you know, Palestinians who are literally under their thumb, but anybody who, like, you know, including American citizens of Palestinian ancestry, no matter who you are, you're at, you're at the mercy of some young, you know, gun-toting soldier. And that's, that's pervasive. Right. So even your American 
citizenship privilege doesn't protect you from that, which is, of course, a theme that you deal with in Mornings in Janine, the character deals with. Yeah. And so can you tell us about when you were kicked out for not having documentation? So I lived in a place called Dar al It's an orphanage, but it's a, a well-known institution in Jerusalem. And I had gone in when I was 10 years old with my grandmother. And Israel used to, this was back when, you know, before they closed off Jerusalem to the West Bank. And so one could travel easily between different parts of the West Bank and Jerusalem in the 80s. And I was stopped at one point. And, you know, if you're younger than 13, they would, they never, you know, they wouldn't ask you for for documentation. But at 13 and above, if you didn't have papers, you had to face the consequences. And I mean, I was quite young at the time. So I don't remember a whole lot, except that my family told me I had to leave. So, and that was when I came to the U.S. You're kind of a Renaissance woman because you write poetry, you write fiction, but you also started out as a scientist. So what turned you into a writer? What made you become a writer from a scientist? In part, it was Janine. And I think I was probably always a writer. I used to write when I was much younger. I used to write Arabic poetry because Arabic was the first language I learned to read and write. I didn't learn to read and write English actually until I was 13 when I, after I came here. And now my Arabic was arrested at that younger stage and it never developed. But I went to medical school because, you know, every Arab family thinks you need to be, like it's the only legitimate profession is a doctor or, or maybe an engineer or something. So, you know, I had to prove something that, you know, to prove I was smart or something smarter than the boys. So I was going to go to medical school and be a doctora. <laughs> but I, I worked in medical research, pharmaceutical research for a while. And then when the second intifada happened, I started just writing, started out as letters to the editor and then op-eds. And I was surprised that editors were asking me to, you know, to submit more things. And I actually didn't realize I could even, I could write. And then when Janine happened, when uh, the massacre in Janine was happening and they weren't calling it that, I knew there was more to it. And so I took my little two-week vacation and I went there and, and uh, it was, it was a, it was a life-altering experience to be so close to that kind of intense cruelty and death and the smell of it and the, just the profound inhumanity really up close. And I think, you know, reading about it in books, it, has never captured, you know, as, as a Palestinian, I've never, you know, I'm not a stranger to gory photos, whether it's from, you know, Sabra and Shatila or, or, you know, the news or the first Intifada. I mean, we, I'd always seen those terrible images, but it was a completely different experience, you know, to be surrounded by it and to speak to people and to be embraced by people who had literally nothing left in the world except their loved ones. And it was profoundly moving and life-changing. And I, when I came back, I just, you know, I was, I really felt completely out of, out of place in working for a corporation. And, and luckily, although I didn't realize it at the time, I was laid off not much longer. <laughs> and it was in part because of the things that I was writing. I mean, you know that, <laughs> well, <laughs> getting canceled. <laughs> this was before cancel culture was even a thing. You were a trailblazer. Yeah, well, uh, that well, women have been canceled for way longer right. for many things for a long time. But, um, you know, as a single mom, I wasn't making much money. And so the only thing, you know, I was terrified not having an income and not having savings. So I, the only thing I could think to do was to sit down and write about what I had witnessed. And, and at some point I realized it was a novel and yeah. Wow, that's great. So glad that it worked out. And you were able to give the world these great books. Yeah, me too. One of the things I love about Mornings in Janine is that it really is historical fiction. And it's also kind of incorporates journalism. And um, you cite writings from Noam Chomsky and the late Robert Fisk and Norman Finkelstein. Did you go into that knowing you wanted to incorporate those kinds of texts? Or did it just come from your writing? No, I don't really know much about the stories I write until I sit down to write them. 
I'm a lot of my writer friends do outlines and, and really sort of have a, a full picture of the story before they write. And that's just not my process. I had a few seed things that I started with, but everything sort of unfolded in the process of writing and rewriting and rewriting. And how autobiographical is Mornings in Janine? So none of my books are autobiographical, but I do insert some autobiographical elements. So what I mean is that none of the characters are me. A lot of people want to know if Amal or any of the other characters are based on my, myself, and the answer is an emphatic no. But in Mornings in Janine, I, if you recall, there's a chapter called The Orphanage. A lot of that was true from my life uh, living in that Jerusalem orphanage for three years. And then Amal is also in Philadelphia and working as a medical writer. So, you know, I did incorporate some things that I knew. I think it's important to kind of know viscerally what you're talking about when, when you write. I mean, I, Research is important and it's necessary. And I, and I do a lot of research for all my books. But, I, but when I'm writing about a place, I'd like to have been there and to have walked the streets and to have smelled the smells and, and heard the sounds. And um, so uh, for her to be in, in Philadelphia, that was just kind of a convenient thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And of course, the main character in your latest book, is in Kuwait, which is where you also lived. Exactly. That's a fascinating novel as well. And you have a character, the main character is a sex worker. I want to know what made you decide to have that as a part of her character. Sex work is actually is like it is everywhere in the world. You know, it's, it's pervasive and it's this big open secret that nobody's allowed to talk about. And as a writer, you know, tell me not to talk about something. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm going to talk about. But I think, you know, my main audience are Arabs and other Palestinians. And so this is, you know, it's, it's an internal kind of dialogue in a lot of ways. It's, this, is a, this is a life lived. This character went through a lot of things. And it's kind of an honor to be able to pull this together and put this in, in our sort of collective literary landscape. I also was really interested in the ways that marginalized people will marginalize members of their own society. And of course, sex workers are certainly marginalized. And I wanted to take that person and explore her life, her humanity, her value, and then put her in one of the most exalted positions in our society, which is one of a freedom fighter. So that was a really interesting process for me as a writer and it was challenging. So that was the thought process behind that. And what are your thoughts on what's happening now in Israel? There's a lot of discussion of the erosion of democracy as if up until this election, Israel's democracy had been thriving. Yeah. I mean, I don't really, I don't care about Israel. I just, you know, I just don't. And, and, and I don't, care to participate in discussions about the sham of a democracy. It's a democracy as much as this country was a democracy during slavery or, you know, as much as South Africa was a democracy during the height of apartheid. It's a big fairy tale and it's a big sham that they push on the world. And I just, I really just don't care to, to even give it, you know, the value of even a discussion. I also call that land Palestine. It is always going to be Palestine to me including the 48 borders. I consider them colonizers. And yeah. And what else do you think people need to know about what's happening in Palestine, in Janine? Something I keep encountering. And I honestly, I know it's not true and I'm struggling with the best way to respond to it. But I'll post something on Twitter about Palestinians being killed and people will say, oh, but they were terrorists. And some of these people are people who are not, raging idiots. How do you deal with this problem of the combination, the range from ignorance to just bigotry and racism? Again, I don't really communicate with... <laughs> right. People who think like that. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't. I mean, they're just not worth my time. I mean, I, they, they're just... I don't see my role as, you know, somebody who's who should be going to battle or go, or try to educate people who are just sometimes frankly just irredeemably racist. And 
my time is better spent in dialogue with other Palestinians, with empowering our community, with uplifting our community and fighting for, for liberation. So, you know, that said, I don't always sort of adhere to my own lofty ideals and I do get sucked into, you know, these idiots and occasionally I will respond. And then I just have to remind myself like, God, what are you doing? You know, because it is easy to get sucked in. I think this is a very old script. You know, it's a very old colonial script. You go in, you terrorize people, you say that God loves you the most and and you're doing this because God is on your side and these people are savages or they're terrorists or they're backward or whatever, whatever the, the description of the day is. And then you kill them, you kill them all. And then when they fight back, and they always will fight back because they're human beings and colonizers always underestimate indigenous people, then, you know, you have an excuse. You say, oh, well, look what they did. I mean, when Native Americans would, on the occasions when they did fight back against white settlers, who would do the unspeakable to them, to whole tribes and whole towns, and when they fought back, they were brutal, you know, when they managed to do something. And then that where they were like, see, look how savage they are. They killed these women and children. Meanwhile, whole families and communities of Native Americans have been wiped out. And that's invisible until the white people got killed. And it's the same thing in this instance. This is another instance of settler colonialism and the extraordinary, intense and persistent daily terrorism and violence and humiliation that is heaped upon Palestinians is completely ignored until we fight back. And when we kill an Israeli, suddenly the world lights up in the media and, in, and then you get these buzzwords about the cycle of violence and the brutality. And then, of course, you know, the magic word terrorists and, and it's thrown around and then voila, that's how you kill every Palestinian. That's how, you know, and, it, and it's just, it's, it's, it's incredible. And like you said, otherwise intelligent people Although I'm not sure that you can really call the intelligent when they sort of buy into this. But it is remarkable to see how, how Israel has managed to have such a grip on public imagination through mainstream media. Which is why I think that there are people who would otherwise, like, I mean, we could have a whole debate on how intelligent you have to be. But I do think that what's scary is that given that people learn about things through the media, when you don't know what they're misrepresenting. I mean, certain things, obviously, like certain bigotry is just has nothing to do with information and it's inexcusable. But then there are other people who I think because our mainstream media is so biased, it's almost hard to realize that what you're hearing is actually not objective reporting, but ideological. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so the problem is, at the very foundation, Americans believe that we have this thing called a free press. So they operate from that assumption and don't really question very much. I mean, they, there's this assumption that, oh, yeah, well, you know, maybe Fox is a little bit right leaning and maybe CNN is a little bit left leaning. But, you know, they balance each other. There's this it, it's it's really and I understand how how it can happen, but it's unfortunate. And, and most people have no idea the amount of spin and messaging and corporate control over what they get to see and how many individual gatekeepers there are to knowledge, to public knowledge and public information. And even, you know, when, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the internet became, you know, was, became the internet, there was a lot of hope that, you know, wow, there's this, you know, and for, and for a couple of decades, that was true. I mean, people had free access to information. But now, I mean, these algorithms and the control, there's corporate control even on, on the internet. And, you know, you can search Google for things you know are real and happen. You can't find them. You know, unless you go to like, you know, page, you know, 5,600 or something. And then yeah, <laughs> on the Google search. Yeah. And then there are all these just subtle ways, like they'll, the media will refer to clashes. Yeah. As if, you know, it's just two, two or like, oh, you know, this is uh, two sides. This other trope is they've always been like this. They can't get along. What's new? They're bad people on both sides. I mean, it's a totally ahistorical analysis of the power dynamics, which just don't exist in this analysis. 
it's purposeful obfuscation. I mean, those those are just some of the the buzzwords that you mentioned. But if you know, there's others like the cycle of violence, and it's a complex situation. Or you don't live there, so you don't know. That's another one. Yeah, exactly. The both sidism arguments. And then, you know, there's so many ways that they manipulate people's thoughts in the way articles are written. So, for example, when Palestinians are murdered by Israeli soldiers, what they'll say is, you know, two Palestinians die in clashes. You know, like they just they just, you know, these these young men just dropped down and died. Yeah. They don't ever tell you how they died, who killed them, etc. But when a Palestinian fights back, it's very clear. Palestinian gunman murders, you know, seven Israelis in a synagogue, which was a lie, by the way. They were not in a synagogue. Right. But there's no equivocating when it comes to describing what Palestinians do. But there's always obfuscation and, and high and, you know, just tempering the Israeli violence and brutality, which is far greater. Yeah, there's a... I can't remember it exactly, but there was one thing where it was like Israeli, something were so absurd. It was almost like Israeli missile finds home in beach in Gaza. Yeah, right. It was like, I, you really can't. Oh, missile at beachside Gaza cafe finds patrons poised for World Cup. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like this missile knocked on the door and said, hi. Yeah. 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 Instead of this missile blows people to pieces who are watching the World Cup. Right. Yeah. It's insane. The linguistic gymnastics are astounding. And the sad thing is that the American public, we're just not primed for critical thinking. Like you can see that and, and, and understand as a journalist, like what? But most Americans don't, they don't think about that. They don't have the critical thinking. Yeah. Because you don't know the reality that's being distorted. You just see the distortion. That's why media analysis is so hard. This is, by the way, the, the thing I was talking about. Missile at Beachside Gaza Cafe finds patron poised for World Cup. That's, yeah. Well, of course, that's the New York Times, which is, you know, the chief, whatever. Yeah, cheerleader. Yeah. Or the IDF. They really are. I mean, it's, it's grotesque that this is the, you know, the paper of record. Tell us about Playgrounds for Palestine and also the Palestine Rights Festival. Palestine Rights is something that I started, um, I think it's been like 22 years now, 23 years. It's a simple project. We're still an all-volunteer um, group of people. We raise money by selling Palestinian olive oil. Here in the U.S., we have our own label. It's called IDA. You can see it on our website. And then whatever we collect, we use to fund the construction of playgrounds. It's a very simple com concept, which ends up being like really complicated. <laughs> it's just because doing anything in Palestine is super complicated. Like we couldn't, we can't just order equipment like normal people and then just install it because we can't do that uh, because Israel makes our life hell. So we have to go through all kinds of, you know, each time is different. Let's <laughs> just say that. But we do build playgrounds um, and they're, they mean a lot to the children that get to use them. And in a lot of ways, it's a Band-Aid. You know, I'm not going to lie. It is, but... People deserve Band-Aids, though. Exactly. But for a lot of kids, it's a whole new world. The Palestine Rights Literature Festival is... Um, this will be the second iteration. It's going to happen in September of this coming year. It is the only North American literature festival that is dedicated to celebrating and promoting Palestinian literature and Palestinian cultural productions. The impetus for this festival was really born from the pervasive exclusion and tokenization of Palestinian voices in mainstream literary and other cultural institutions in this country. So it's... Um, we, you know, we wanted to create a space that is for us and it's by us and it's with our friends. Most of the speakers are Palestinians and we bring them from all parts of our nation, from the 48 territories, from Jerusalem, from Lebanon, the West Bank, from Gaza, and from our diaspora in the Arab world and in the U.S. And there are non-Palestinian speakers as well, all of whom, you know, have good politics. <laughs> 
Alan Dershowitz. Yeah, no, he's not coming. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, we, I mean, we, we talk about books. We talk about uh, the world. We talk about climate change, feminism, gender issues, queerness. There's workshops on all kinds of things on how to write, how to get published, um, how to do a Depke. There's uh, there's Depke, there's performances, there's music, there's great food. There's all day children's programming, story time. So it's really cool thing. And and we're really proud of it. It's it's a lot of work. (laughs) We're in the process now of, you know, we're still raising money. We have we have some really cool people lined up couple of really big names that I'm excited about, but we haven't announced yet. So say anything. Okay. Where's it going to be? It's going to be, oh yeah. It's, thank you for asking. It's going to be in Philadelphia at, on the University of Pennsylvania campus. Yeah. I hope you come, Katie. Yeah. Nice to have you. Yeah. I'd love to come. I'll get the dates and put in my calendar. 22nd to the 24th in September. 22nd, 24th. Great. And what else are you working on? Are you working on a new novel or poetry or? I am. Oh, you are? Great. What can you tell us about it? You know what? Here it is. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just got some pages from my editor that I sent to her. So she sent me, she sent them back. That's what I have on my desk. Um, yeah, I'm excited about it. I unfortunately had to put it aside and I haven't touched it in months because of, you know, working for the festival, which is just consuming my time at the moment. But I hope this will be done in, um, you know, a few months. Maybe, hopefully, it'll come out in 2024, I hope, or 2025. I'm not sure. And what's it about? Can you tell us anything about it? I can tell you that it involves a woman from one of the camps in Lebanon who makes her way back to Palestine on foot. Wow. Across the border with her donkey. <laughs> I'm excited to read it. And I want to know your thoughts. Have you seen the movie Farha? I have. And actually, I will say this. Darin Salam, who the director is coming to Palestine Rights Literature Festival. Oh, great. And this is a Netflix film, by the way, just in case people don't know. It's excellent. I'll let Susan, you can describe it. But it was, of course, accused of being anti-Semitic. A smear that Susan knows all too well, as do I. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm lucky. I usually get one degree. I get the self-loathing Jew. Yeah, I was going to say self-hating. Yeah. Yeah. So Farha is a wonderful, relatively short film about one experience during the Nakba. And it was remarkable, particularly because it's really the first time that we have seen our trauma sort of reflected in popular media. As a matter of fact, we don't get to see ourselves reflected in any human way in popular media, which is part of the the reason for Palestine rights. So there is Mo, I don't know if you saw that series. Yeah. It's literally the first time we've ever seen, you know, a Palestinian human being or reflected as a human, you know, seeing somebody in the fullness of their humanity and their lives and their, their silliness and, and, you know, bad decisions and all of that. It just happened in 2022. I mean, that's how demonized and vilified we are in this society. And then on the heels of that, Farha came and it was such a moment for us. Like I, so many of us hesitated to watch it. I mean, I can't tell you how many of my friends were, you know, they wanted to watch it, but they just couldn't because it's, you know, the Nakba is still real and raw. And it's based on a true story also. It is absolutely. And you know the thing and but I did watch it because I also had hesitation too. I was kind of bracing myself and I'll I'll admit I had a couple of glasses of wine to first. And it was really beautifully done. There was a lot left up to the imagination, which was why it was so masterful. She didn't have to show everything and it was specifically told from that little girl's point of view who could only see out of that one little hole. Is it okay to tell the story, I guess, what it is? Yeah. The Nakba is the process of when Israel sort of committed a series of massacres and pogroms to drive out Palestinians from their homes and their villages. And then they went in and they would raise the villages to prevent Palestinians from returning. They also robbed the villages and robbed the people leaving and and just sort of took everything. And in this one particular village, 
Israel is declared and these Israeli soldiers, they're coming into the village. And the father, who was the muhtar of the village, hides his daughter in a machzan. I don't know what the word is in English. It's just kind of on closet. It's a machzan. It's like a, a machzan is like... Is it a cellar? Yeah, it's like a food cellar, a pantry. And he locks her in there. And she just, she sees what's happening outside just through this one little hole that she carves out. And she sees, you know, really terrible things. She sees this one whole family sort of killed and before her eyes and they don't really show it. And then you, there was a baby that was born and you just hear the baby crying and then it stops crying, but you don't see, you know, you don't see anything. So there's a lot left to the imagination, but it was, it meant a lot to really, to, to see that, to, to see a story from this great trauma that we all We all have stories of the Nakba. Every Palestinian has a a hugely traumatic story. And it's really, no matter what divides us, whether they're political divisions, whether they are geographic or now linguistic or economic divisions or religious divisions, we all sort of have this common wound that we share. You know, much in the same way, I guess it is for Jews, you know, no matter what the differences are, there is this sort of common anguish that is the Holocaust. The difference is that the Holocaust is, has been acknowledged. You know, there's no there's no equivocating about it. There are monuments and museums and, and memorials all over the world. And it's built into a lot of mainstream education. It's the curricula, right. And it's of every other people. I mean, it, it has probably the most stories told in film and other popular media outlets. And that, you know, that's part of the restitution and the healing. We've never had that. We've never had an acknowledgement. We've never had a moment to see ourselves reflected in a way that is sympathetic. And so that's what Farha meant to us here. It was huge. It's monumental. And it's such a small film. And you would think that, you know, how can one small thing do that? But it does because, and, and when it, when it does that, it makes you realize how humiliated you have been as a people and how you continue to be that you are so happy and excited and thrilled to see this, to be so happy to see Mo and feel like, you know, like you're going to cry over this silly, funny comedy of a series And then, you know, you examine your own feelings about such a thing. And the only realization you can come to is that this is just, this is the depth of our humiliation. This is the depth of our exclusion. This is how, how demeaned we are in the society that we're all going nuts on Twitter about it. Why do you think there's been a shift in perception on this issue? Well, because, you know, decades of work, decades of people working and, and refusing to go away, refusing to be silent, refusing to, um, uh, you know, to, 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 to cave into cancellation. People who will continue to write after they get fired or will, you know, will make their own shows when they get fired, <laughs> you know, hats off to you. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's in the same way that there's a shift in everything. And I, and I think it also, there's only so much, I mean, Israel has done a really extraordinary job at, at hiding things and spinning things and obfuscating reality, but there's only so much they can do, you know, I mean, it's a really brutal society and I like they've brutal, they, in, in hating us so much and brutalizing us, they've actually destroyed their own lives. They've destroyed their soul. Like I, I would hate to be an Israeli. I would hate to be part of that society, even though they have all the power and all the money and all the clout and, um, and all the, the weapons, I would not want to be them because I think they've become a soulless, vacuous people. And that, that happens when you, you know, when every member of your society is conscripted into brutalizing other people on a regular basis, that's a terrible thing. And I think victims are better at retaining their humanity than the victimizers. And I think, 
at some point, you just can't hide that. Any final thoughts that you want to share or any Palestinian writers or activists you want to give shouts out to? Oh my gosh, there's so many. I am. Uh, I, I will say that we are working with, the team working on Palestine rights is amazing. Susan Amadi Daraj is, she's also a Palestinian writer, is directing, she's the director of the publication arm. We're also publishing um, an old Kenafani biography that's been out of print. So she's she's doing that. Hawei Daraf, whom you might know, she was the co-founder of the International Solidarity Movement. She's a human rights attorney, is also part of it. Ala Talal Fahmawi, Laura Bast. Yeah, we, we have a really, a really great crew. Well, thank you so much. Everyone follow Susan. I'll put her Twitter in the description. Um, the, the website for Palestine Rights is in the description already. And we'd love to have you back. Thank you, Katie. I appreciate you having me. Thanks. That was great. Wow. Love that conversation and really highly recommend Susan's books. They're great. You enjoy them as novels and you get to learn about history and politics. So we are going to bring in our next guest. And I just want to remind people that if you haven't already done so, please do like this stream. Also, please subscribe. You can subscribe very easily by pressing subscribe and then the bell. That way you don't miss any streams. So you won't miss great speakers like Susan and Aaron. Also, if you are watching live, you'll get to see this entire interview with Aaron that's coming up. If you're watching later and you want to see the full interview with Aaron, as well as a chat that I had with Brianna Joy Gray, you can do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So I'm about to bring on Aaron Good. He is a political scientist and historian, the host of American Exception podcast, and the author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Thanks for coming. Wanted to ask you to start off. You talk about a word that gets thrown around a lot, and I want you to talk about what it means. And the word is hegemony. Because a lot of things that the United States does, people say, well, it's all about U.S. hegemony or the U.S. needs to be a hegemon. But what does that actually mean? Well, it's, it's very similar to the idea of imperialism, except it's a little broader. If you say hegemony, it can actually apply to dominance over any particular realm. So you could say that, I don't know, Darwinian evolution is hegemonic in the field of biology, for example. In the case of U.S. foreign policy and political science and international relations, which is a subdiscipline of political science, it means uh, the dominance over the globe, over the international system. And this is something that as an empire, you strive to achieve hegemony over your empire, over the area you're supposed to dominate. And so the U.S. pretty much picked this up from the British, but they sort of supersized it when they became the, the global hegemon after World War II. And this is, I think, been the defining feature of U.S. society is uh, this global hegemony, which has uh, really, I think, overridden all other aspects of U.S. politics. And it's really, it's been the driving force of U.S. history now is this drive for global dominance. And so it's something everybody should should be aware of and, and, and be thinking about if they care about politics. And when the United States does something or the government does something or the deep state does something, and we'll get into that in a second, and they're doing it for the sake of hegemony. Does that mean political power, political dominance? Does that mean economic dominance? Is it a combination of those things? They are all related. When you control the economic system of a, of, of a civilization, then you're going to control the apparatus that is supposed to secure that system and protect it. So under feudalism, you had the crown and it was... Legitimate, legitimated by the church, and they paid all the salaries of the sheriffs and other knights and so on, because they controlled the whole economic system and where all the money and surplus of the economy went. And so they could maintain themselves for a while that way. And they controlled the culture that way. The church was the responsible for the sense-making of the time. You know, the earth was flat, and it was at the center of the universe. And the king was the king because the uh, the, because God wanted it that way. And if he, if God didn't want it that way, then the king wouldn't be the king. This is kind of like the logic of hegemony. If you apply it 
that's that logic to feudalism, then it's, we can, it, it seems very clear and it, it becomes kind of ridiculous to think, to endow or to invest any of those institutions with like, you know, uh, legitimacy or divine sanction or whatever. When we think about our own times, we, we typically think about it differently because we sort of trust, we believe in things like the free press. Okay, but the myth of the free press uh, is kind of like the, the divine right of kings. It's just something that it, it falls apart if you scrutinize it at all. But it's like, this is one of the things that we think of as uh, explaining how our civilization works. So yeah, hegemony in all these areas, culture, cultural, economic, uh, intellectual, educational, uh, these are these are all inter interrelated. And I think that in the U.S. case, this international hegemony over the global political economy is what underpins the uh, all of the other ways that they control, you know, perceptions around the world and everything else. Uh, this is the, so every the, it's all it's all it really is all related. I mean, this is a, a kind of a generic materialist perspective, but uh, I think it's it's pretty hard to argue with uh, when it comes down to it. How does this apply in the real world? Like, let's talk about what's happening now in Russia. The United States is doing what it's doing. So for someone like me, and I think like you and a lot of my viewers, right, the United States did not do all of it could have done to stop the invasion. As Chris Hedges says, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he says it was unjustifiable, but predictable, and it was avoidable. And we've seen since the beginning of the war, we've seen the West and the United States try to stop peace negotiations. So where does hegemony fit into that? Well, this goes into, I mean, this goes way back in terms of the U.S. and what they've really been doing since the end of World War II. Or even if you take it back to World War I, it's similar to things the British were doing. A part of the reason World War I happens is because uh, the admiralty of, uh, you know, the, the British Navy, and you've got Winston Churchill, he's in a position of power there, and they make the decision that they're going to have to go for oil and that they're going to refit the entire British Navy to run on oil because it's more efficient. And the big oil, there's not much oil in Britain. There's a lot of coal, and that helped them earlier in industrialization, but not in the age of oil. Now, there is a lot of oil in the Middle East, and Germany is building a railroad that goes all the way from Berlin to Baghdad. And this is in the years before World War I. And this would have been a huge threat to the British Empire. And people, more and more historians nowadays, are recognizing that this was actually an underlying cause of World War I. That this whole Anglo-Atlanticist imperialism, which the U.S. has inherited, that it's been really preoccupied with the idea of Germany, and especially Germany combined with Middle Eastern oil resources and with Russian raw materials, that if they ever became allied, that that would be a real countervailing power against the U.S. and before that against Britain. So this was a part of World War I. And then after World War I, you know, you have the Balfour Declaration which gets into pipelines and other issues. I mean, this is an underlying part of why Israel gets established. So people would think about this as maybe politically active Jewish people who, you know, who are Zionists and want this homeland in the area. But there were elements of the British establishment that made all sorts of plans and schemes to, uh, after the Ottoman Empire got, gets broken up, and a lot of it has to do with pipelines and controlling that Middle Eastern oil. Um, but and this, there's also this fear of Germany as allying with Russia, especially as the Great Depression hit. And this was a huge concern of theirs. This is why they back somebody like Hitler, who is a kind of a who is a, kind of who is a lunatic, but he has as his main redeeming quality the fact that he it will kill all the communists. And so he's backed by uh, Anglo-American elites, you know, Tory elites, and so on, and people like John Foster Dulles who helped to broker bond sales on the international market, which allowed for Germany to rearm. And the whole idea is to create a, uh, put a regime in there that will not allow the socialists to take over. So they have the Reichstag fire and they blame it on a communist, even though it was most likely the Nazis that did this. Uh, and they eventually attack Russia. The, they were called the anti-Comintern pact. That's the name of the Axis powers, the, you know, Italy, Germany and Japan, it's the anti-Comintern, anti-Communist International. And uh, it, the idea was to set them up uh, to attack Russia, or the Soviet Union. Now, after World War II, you had Europe, which was economically in bad shape, 
Russia was devastated. Even though they won, they lost 27 million people. They didn't want Eastern Europe to be, the Russians, the Soviets didn't want Eastern Europe to be uh, part of a block that only they controlled. They actually thought they would trade with Western Europe and they could have some you know, good relations with them. It's really the U.S. who decides that uh, they can't allow the Eastern Europe, the, the communist countries to trade with the West. They, they do this because they're really afraid of neutrality. They're not afraid the Soviets are going to invade. They're afraid of neutrality and that there would be trade between Europe and Russia, just like today with the Nord Stream. And so they have this document, NSC 68, which describes the dollar gap and all this prob- these problems of trading uh, with the, the Russians and the problems that the Europeans are going to have. And the way they get around that is to create the military industrial complex to have a lot of money and the Marshall Plan, keeping money flowing the right way, but also shutting off trade between Europe and Russia. And because they just need that to to create this capitalist world that they wanted. And that's what they've had since the end of World War II is the U.S. as the center of gravity with capital and trade going across the the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean both uh, and the U.S. to maintain this position of global dominance. And this has been since the end of uh, in the 21st century, the end of the Cold War. They've been going further and further east. So going into former NATO, uh, former Soviet bloc countries with ex- the expansion of NATO, the whole global war on terror and the Arab Spring Wars afterwards, if you look at them, these are in the same vein. They're really trying to maintain hegemony over that pivotal area between Europe and the former Soviet-dominated sphere of influence and control the Middle East as well. And this is all really about the U.S. attempting to manage geopolitics around the world and they have they eventually did so much in ukraine that and uh, with that it was uh, perceived as a threat by the russians which it was I, i'm not going to say you can justify the invasion but what the u.s was doing in ukraine with the maidan coup which was one of the most obvious cia coups ever uh and then not allowing mints to take to happen and have this this war this this attack on the donbass this is all to um, try to damage Russia. That was the reason the U.S. put so much emphasis on Ukraine in the first place was because it was perceived as an area of Russian vulnerability. Zbigniew Brzezinski, in his book, The Grand Chessboard, which was commissioned by the Council on Foreign Relations, the same group that planned the U.S. War, uh, global empire during World War II, before it even had won the war, uh, that Brzezinski was talking about Ukraine all the way back then in the, in the mid-90s. And it's so straightforward to understand as the, the, why the U.S. is there. The U.S. is not especially concerned about democracy really anywhere when it comes down to it, ne- definitely not in Ukraine. It's The significance of Ukraine is that it is geopolitically extremely important to Russia. It's almost like as important as, say, the entire like East Coast of the United States. It, it's really, you can't quite put it into an easy analogy, but it's the warm water port that connects to the Mediterranean and thus to, uh, you know, point south for Russia. And it's how it's a, it was a part of how they were able to save the Syrian government when the U.S. was trying to take that, that government down. So it's just enormously important and very provocative. And it kind of supersedes questions of justice or righteousness or international law, because for one thing, the U.S. violated international law by overthrowing the government in the first place in 2014. But also Existential security is just the, the U.S. ignores international law all the time over things that are way less threatening than what Ukraine represents to Russia. So uh, people just need to understand how these things work in historical context. But most of our education and media it does just the opposite. It's there to make. Ooh, we lost you. Uh oh, the deep state intervening. OK, are you there? You froze for a second. I'm here. OK, great. So we're going to get into the Nord Stream pipeline. We're going to get into the weaponization of the term conspiracy theory. But before we go into that, wanted to ask you some more nerdy questions. What is the tripartite state? So I wrote about the tripartite state first in 2015, and it's a theoretical construct to try to explain the deep state, which by 2015 wasn't, didn't, hadn't been turned into, hadn't been Trumpified, it hadn't been given that that terrible taint uh, uh, with as being associated with Donald Trump, and it, it's a it builds on ideas of the dual state, which would be you know two a two part thing, 
which was the idea of a security state and a democratic state, right? Uh, the security state would be these security bureaucracies like the military, the FBI, CIA, and then the, the democratic state is the part they teach you about in, in high school civic classes, you know, elections and Congress and the president and all that. But it, neither of those ac- accounts, the, the idea of a dual state is actually a critique of democracy. And it says, hey, these security state institutions are very powerful and kind of undemocratic and secretive and potentially lawless. We should look at them more. The tripartite state complicates it even further because it, it's a way of looking at a, a different kind of power and how it is institutionalized in the way we are governed. So sometimes when there has been there have been conflicts in the US between the democratic state and the national security state, like in the 70s, they had to cut back on CIA missions, right? But what do these guys do? Well, they use other, you know, sources of money, like uh, different sources of funding from clandestine banking networks connected to oil, connected to foreign governments and so on. And they create this thing called the Safari Club. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.